You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. And if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus this morning, uh, that passage we learned is in obviously the broader context of chapter 3. And so I'm going to read Titus chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8. Titus 3 verses 1 through 8. And let us stand. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally, uh, generously through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Bureaucrats and health officials in South Korea are not happy with Embro and Lone Shark. Uh, these are two individuals that are Korean entrepreneurs uh, who are well known on YouTube, who between them have over 5 million subscribers. And the officials are furious because they feel that their show and the clips they put on take away from the Korean culture and are undermining it. So you may wonder, what are Embro and Lone Shark broadcasting? Well, what they are doing is broadcasting themselves eating a tremendous amount of food in a limited amount of time. And so these eating broadcasts, health officials in Korea and Korean bureaucrats are saying is teaching our people to become obese, it is taking away from them the sense of cultural pride that there should be as Koreans and turning them into just merely hedonistic, pleasure-seeking people. Well, it's that last thought that somehow this is running against culture. And what do you do when something runs against culture that is a similarity between that situation in Korea right now and the letter known as Titus. Paul is very concerned that as Titus is working with the church in Crete, what do you do when you find that you are trying to live out your faith in a culture that runs counter to the truths of Christianity? What should our response be? Uh, and so turn with me to Titus chapter 3. And our memory verse, as you well know for this year, comes from this particular chapter. Uh, and knowing what I've just told you kind of sets part of the context. The rest is that Titus is considered a pastoral epistle. Uh, 
So Paul has written almost half of the New Testament, uh, but there's three letters that are addressed not to a church, but addressed to individual leaders in the church. And those would be the three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And so if you look for a moment at Titus chapter 1, verse 12, you see what I was mentioning when I said that the church in Crete finds itself in a culture that is opposing the truths of what Christianity says, which we could say simply is the same thing for us in the U.S. today, for many Christians all over the world. Notice Titus 1, and as Paul writes this letter, in verse 12 he refers to the perception that the Cretan people have as a culture. And in verse 12 he says, Even one of their own prophets or philosophers has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That gives you a glimpse into the culture. Paul is not saying every single one is like this because there are believers in Crete, which is why Titus is there and why Paul is writing to Titus to instruct these Christians. But it gives you a glimpse into here is a culture that stands for everything that runs counter to Christianity. So what do you do when that's where you find yourself? Well, I think the book gives us two lessons, two lessons that transcend culture and that transcend time, which is why we need to look at them. And so notice in verses one and two, the first lesson that comes out after I read this is that we need to realize spiritual complacency and inactivity is a sin. Spiritual complacency and inactivity is a sin. Notice how verse 1 begins in chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Now, that word remind in some translations might have uh, bring to remembrance. Uh, in other words, to uh, put this before them continually, to keep their thoughts on this very important principle. And anytime you are given something and you're told, remember this, or I'm reminding you of this, it automatically implies that there's a tendency we have to forget this. So if your spouse says to you, I'm just reminding you the trash needs to go out, um, that's a reminder of probably something you might tend to forget with other things that you're doing. So the letter here begins with this fact that Paul is telling Titus, as a spiritual leader, remind your people, given the cultural climate they are in, where clearly this is not going to be welcomed, where it's not going to be reinforced by the world around you. Keep this before you. So the standard for our spiritual health and vitality should be measured not by our culture, but by Christ. We should not measure our spirituality based even on other Christians around us, which is something we often do. We look at other Christians, we're like, well, you know, I may not be perfect, but I'm not like such and such, or I'm doing better than such and such in my walk with Christ. Those are the wrong standards to measure this by. And so Paul is telling Titus, as you look at what spiritual health and vitality is, 
Do not look at the culture around you, but look to Christ. What standards has Christ set? And so you see scattered throughout this letter, although it's very brief, uh, a number of references to, well, what is that standard? So notice in chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 2 of Titus and verse 14, Paul writes the following. He says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the noun eager there means literally zealous, zealous for God. So that is a phrase that should describe everyone who knows Christ as Lord and Savior, that we are zealous for God. Now, we don't want to run with that with the way our world can take that to, oh, you mean I have to be an extremist? Uh, I have to be seen as some kind of freak? No, but your passion for God should be evident. They did a survey not that long ago among youth, uh, kind of seeing where they stood spiritually, and this was generally Christian youth, and they responded that they want to grow spiritually, but they do not want to be considered weird. And I think sometimes we let that definition of what does it mean to be zealous for God be redefined by our culture. Because in this sense, you will stand out if you are zealous for God. You won't always blend in. You will not always be able to join in every conversation that your coworkers are laughing at or engaged in because you are going by a different standard. And you're not seeking to be rude, you're seeking to be godly and obedient to him. So Paul tells Titus in chapter 2 there, uh, teach the people to be eager to do good works. But then you go into chapter 3 and you notice verse 8, the last part of the verse we're going to be learning. There in verse 8, after saying this is a trustworthy saying, it goes on and says, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to do what is good. Now, this is not merely Paul rephrasing when he said, teach them to be eager to do good. But when he says devote here, he's using a different word. And the word actually means to, to rule or lead them. So Titus not only teach them, to be zealous for God, but lead them by your example. Teach others in your church to lead each other to be eager to do good things. So two words that are kind of similar, but yet emphasize two different aspects of this. And so in order to even begin to act upon that, we must acknowledge spiritual inactivity and spiritual complacency in our own hearts and in the life of a church is a sin. We, we can't compare ourselves to another church and say, well, we're doing better than them. Uh, th that's not the measure. We, we need to be eager to do good works. Well, that brings us to this question when Paul keeps emphasizing, teach them to do good, be eager to do good. What does the word good mean? Because we might run with that and think, oh, socially, we just need to offer lots of activities to our community and seek to just show them we're just such nice people and we have this general kind of 
love for all those around us. Is, is that what Paul is telling Titus to do? Well, you notice in verses 1 and 2 and then 3 and 4, there, there's a tremendous contrast between these verses, which helps us understand the definition of the word good that keeps coming up in this letter. So, for example, you see in verse 2, here would be things that are not good. To slander, instead we should be peaceable and considerate. We should show true humility. Then you get into verse 3, here is what we were before acknowledging Christ as our Savior and Lord. And here are all the traits and characteristics that should no longer mark us. We should no longer be considered foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, malice, envy, hating, and being hated. Now it is true, Scripture does say that they will hate you because of me. But that's dealing with the issue of truth, not with just being merely offensive in your personality. So this helps us define good is those characteristics that would reflect the glory and character of God. And possibly at times those are displayed through social activities, social-oriented ministries, but, but not as an end in and of themselves. So this is what Paul means when he says, Titus, teach your people and you personally lead them in what it means to do good. Now, Titus is a leader in the church. He's a pastor. But at the same time, how do you counter the propensity, the natural tendency we all have for spiritual inactivity and complacency? Because the fact that we have to be reminded this is not acceptable implies, as we personally know, it is so easy to lose sight, to, to start to drift. So what do we need to do? Well, the answer is sound teaching and spiritual role models. Because as you look at this particular letter, Paul will touch on both of those. So Titus, what you need to do is continue to pound away at sound teaching and continue to yourself personally, as well as in the church, develop spiritual models of what godliness looks like. So to give you a glimpse of this, go to Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. How would you like these, this job description given to you? Imagine Paul, you've ministered with Paul, you've been co-laborers together for many, many years. And Paul says this, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I just love that phrase. I've left you there to straighten this out. Now, Paul's not saying this is a complete mess and I'm just abandoning it. I'm throwing my hands up. But he's saying, Titus, there's work to be done there. And, and I'm putting you there to, to make it right. And the rightness is according to the standard of God. And so he begins with telling him then, what kind of leaders do you want in the church? What kind should you be pursuing? And you have a description there that follows of elders and deacons in the church. But notice how it begins with the fact that how do you do this with sound, consistent teaching? So how do we develop into spiritually healthy believers? Through sound, consistent 
systematic reading of God's Word, thinking on it, praying on it, uh, repeatedly building and investing in spiritual truth through, through worship, fellowship, of every opportunity we have to grow. And you can listen to podcasts during the week, which is great. But remember, that's not to replace one-on-one FaceTime with God and His Word and other believers. But now if you go over to chapter 2 and verse 7, I mentioned this task is not going to be accomplished without sound teaching and spiritual models. Notice in verse 7 of Titus chapter 2, Paul, in giving instructions about young men being uh, modeled by older men, says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. What a a well-rounded position there that Titus... When you teach sound doctrine, not everyone is going to stand up and applaud you. There will be people that will not want to hear that in that culture, in that day. But, but continue to do it. Because realize the integrity of your life will silence those critics. They will raise their voices. They will object. And you know what, Titus? They may even leave the church. But continue to teach sound doctrine. Be an example to them. And I think this is where we know in our lives those individuals who most spiritually impact us are not just those who are articulate or can present a Bible lesson or a sermon with skill, but but their lives match and support that. That we see it lived out in their life. And so Paul's saying to Titus, you're doing a good job. Continue to teach them. And continue, you yourself and others in the church, challenge them to be examples. Call them out in their faith to be an example. Now we know clearly no one is perfect. No one is perfect in the church, this side of heaven. So he's not saying expect perfection from all those in your church, but expect to see spiritual growth. Expect that spiritual complacency will not be just accepted or tolerated because it's tolerated in our world because it is against the standard of Scripture. Then you go to chapter 2, verse 15, and Paul sort of gives these summary statements. In verse 15, he says, These then are the things you should teach, referring to everything he just said in chapter 2. These things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, I was just mentioning that we know that, <clears throat> that not everyone is perfect. Certainly Titus, as a leader, had his areas where he needed to grow. And this may be one of those where Paul says, you know, Titus, uh, do this with, with full conviction and authority. Uh, you know, I realize you might, maybe, maybe you want to hesitate a little sometimes. Maybe looking at the culture around you, knowing what the Cretans are like, this can be kind of intimidating to actually call sin for what it is. But, but do this. And you have three key words here that are mentioned. Um, teach them. Uh, and this refers to not just the content one delivers, but the authority behind that content. 
In other words, remember that you are a servant of God. You, you should proclaim God's word with confidence because it is God's word. And I think that's true for each of us. If we're in a conversation with someone and, and they want to know if something is right or wrong, moral or amoral, we, we should not answer that in a very kind of apologetic, sort of weak voice, like, well, you know, the Bible says we should speak with conviction on that. Because we're, we're simply stating this is what God's Word says. I'm not just giving you my opinion. I'm not just kind of going whichever direction our cultural wind is blowing in at that moment. I am telling you this is what God's Word says. And then you notice in chapter 3, verse 14, as you get to Paul's final remarks and wrap-up to Titus, he says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. If I were to say to you, this is something we need to learn, that implies this is a continual process. That you may be thinking about that right now at this moment because this is what the passage says. But we'd be thinking about it this week. We'd be reading God's word to remind you and take you back to we are to be a people who do not tolerate spiritual complacency and inactivity. Not, not just in other believers, but, but in our own hearts and lives. And so you see Paul saying here, we, we need to learn this. Our people, the people Paul is responsible for overseeing, the people Titus together is responsible for overseeing. We should be able to say as a congregation, this is what we need to learn, to be devoted to doing good. Well, the second lesson is actually an application of the first one. If we've learned and acknowledged this is a sin, then the second lesson would be that we need to actively pursue right thinking and good works. I mean, if one course is sinful and dishonors God, then the natural response would be, what is the right course? And that is being devoted to right thinking and good works. Now, as I say that, I realize there is a potential confusion here. And I think as you read Paul's letters and you think about when you tell someone the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Christ, there is always the danger of confusing the importance of grace and works. And Paul faced this. Many times in his letters, he had to stop and clarify and say, I know what you are thinking here, I'm saying, but I'm not saying that. So in other words, we might have a tendency to say, well, it's all grace and works don't matter. Or to go the other extreme and say, it's all works and grace doesn't matter. That's not right biblical thinking, either of those extremes. And so Paul does an excellent job here of once again affirming to Titus, what is the right relationship? In other words, what does right thinking look like in the church, in the mind of a believer? And so you see this in verses 4 through 7. Right thinking means we must first never forget that you have been saved by grace, not works. So even though the lesson is, well, you need to pursue right thinking and good works, 
Paul says, let me back up just in case you, you've misunderstood what I mean. And so notice in verse 4, he says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Paul says that's what we need to get into our hearts and minds. You have been saved by grace. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous all because of what God has done for you in Christ. His kindness, his love, and his mercy. That is the grounds of your salvation and present standing in Christ. There's a reason that Paul says in verse 5, and it's not because of anything you have done. Because he knows that the thoughts might suddenly shift to, okay, Paul, uh, you want Titus to, to be focusing on just good works. And that's only a social gospel, not a saving gospel. So right thinking is knowing your salvation is by grace alone through faith. And only when we've saturized our minds with that truth can the second part of right thinking have its proper balance. And that is that we need to be devoted to good works for the right reasons. And so as we've already seen in verse 8 as well as verse 14, Paul says, teach your people to be devoted to what is good. In other words, works are not the grounds of your salvation, as you've heard me say many times before. But it is the evidence, the demonstration, that your salvation in Christ is genuine. That is right biblical thinking. And we as the people of God should be devoted to doing good works. Now, notice how Paul wraps this up in verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is a certain saying. This is sure. And not only is it a trustworthy saying, but he says, I, I want you to stress these things. I want you to teach them with confidence. I want you to insist on it with your people. This doesn't necessarily mean that every time Titus stands up to speak to the congregation in Crete, he has to say these words. But I think Paul's saying, you know what? Any way you can find, remind them that they are called to good works because they have been saved by grace. And isn't that the thinking that we need to get into our hearts and minds? That the world does need to see in us that we are a transformed people. And one of the ways they will see that is by outwardly in our actions, how we speak, how we conduct ourselves in stressful situations, how we respond to events going on in the news and in our world. Do we come down to the level of our culture or do we transcend that level and stand out because we have been saved by God's grace? And because of that, we're a people committed to action. We're a people committed to doing what is good. Notice Paul, in verse 8, finishes up and says, These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. 
Now the word excellent is the same word already rendered earlier good. These things are good. This commitment to this kind of attitude is what delights God. It reflects God's character. It reflects the grace and mercy that you have received as you display that to others for the cause of Christ. But I like how he also says this is profitable for everyone. It's a pastoral letter, but what he's telling Titus to deliver here, every single Christian needs to live by these lessons. It, it's useful to you in your faith. It, it will what be enables you to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians chapter 2, we have the well-known passage in verse verses 8 and following. Uh, the reminder that we are saved by grace. And once again, writing to another congregation, Paul has no problem with saying, yes, you're saved by grace, but you should be devoted to good works. And so you see this in Ephesians 2. Verse 8 begins and says the following. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A consistent teaching in Paul's letters for God's people. And I can't think of a, a better time at the start of a new year a new verse to put before us, and standing before the Lord's table to examine ourselves and say, do we understand what it means that we are saved by grace? We're saved by the work of Christ, not of any work of our own. But because of the work of Christ, we now should be a people devoted to doing good, to good works that honor him and draw others to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have spoken to us through your word. And I pray that as we examine ourselves before you, that we would be honest, that we would be transparent, that if we acknowledge these are things in our lives that must be changed, that we would do so knowing that you, by your grace, will complete the work that you have started in each one of us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.